0: Please turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 2. The epistle to the Colossians in chapter 2 as we continue in our series of sermons through this wonderful book, we come this morning now to the second chapter of the book of Colossians, Colossians chapter 2 and we'll read together verses 1 through 5. Colossians chapter 2, please follow along as I read. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments, for though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Let's pray once more. Let's pray together. Father, now here is your word spread before us. Please speak to us through it. We pray what we know not You would teach us, what we have not You would give us, and what we are not You would make us for the glory of the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. There was a phrase I started to hear in Christian circles beginning about 15 years ago. I don't remember hearing it much before then, uh, though I suppose the phrase has been in use for a long time. I nonetheless started to hear it and hear it often. Uh, beginning about 15 years ago, and that was the phrase, Christ-centered, Christ-centered. We want to be Christ-centered Christians, Christ-centered churches. Publishers wanted to sell Christ-centered books. Preachers want to preach Christ-centered sermons. Ministries want to be Christ-centered. Now, that is a truly wonderful phrase and a wonderful idea. Who doesn't want to be Christ-centered? But what does it mean What does it mean to be Christ-centered? There's lots of different notions and ideas about what it means to be Christ-centered. I wonder if I asked you, what does it mean to be Christ-centered, how you would articulate what that phrase should convey? Well, we're in the middle of a series of sermons in a book that has as its theme the centrality of Christ. The theme of the book of Colossians, if you want to tuck this, way, this away for your Bible reading in the days ahead and for the study of this series, the theme of the book of Colossians is the centrality and the preeminence of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. We've already seen this in the first chapter, if you've been with us in our exposition of that chapter, in Paul's opening prayer for the Colossians in the first few verses of that first chapter, Paul opens by giving thanks for the Colossian Christians and their faith in in Christ and that they are established in Him. His thanksgiving then turns into petition. Uh, Paul then prays that the Colossian Christians would grow in wisdom and understanding and knowledge and discernment so that they might lead lives that are fully pleasing to Christ, bearing fruit in every good work. Paul's prayer then in chapter 1 segues into what we've called the Christ hymn in verses 15 through 20 in chapter 1, which is centered entirely on the preeminence of Christ. His nature, His deity, His glory, His centrality, and His preeminence overall. And then, as we saw last week, chapter 1 concludes with Paul providing us with a statement about his own ministry, particularly highlighting the centrality of Christ to the message that he preaches. Verse 28, he says, Him, Christ, we proclaim. That is the center of the apostolic message. For the Christians in Colossae and indeed for all Christians in every place. Now in chapter 2, which we turn to this morning, Paul is going to begin to open up the letters theme, which again, as I said, is the centrality and the preeminence of Christ. And it's here in chapter 2 that Paul indicates something of the circumstances or the situation that might have occasioned this letter in the first place. I'll remind you, Paul is writing from prison in Rome He's in the final five years or so of his life, most likely uh, in the early 60s A.D., and he's writing to these saints in Colossae whom he's never met. We got an idea in chapter 2 of one of the things, at least, that precipitated the writing of this letter. In the background of chapter 2, and we'll see this over the next few weeks as we're in chapter 2 of Colossians, in the background of chapter 2, and at points even in the foreground of chapter 2, Paul is addressing what is often referred to by scholars and commentators as the Colossian heresy. The Colossian heresy. If you're familiar with the New Testament, and if you're familiar with the Apostle Paul in particular, it's not unusual for him to address various kinds of errant or false teachings in his letters. And usually it's not hard to tell Or to piece together from the things that he's writing to certain Christians, the various elements and the nature and makeup of the false teaching. So for example, if you read Paul's letter to the Galatians, it's very obvious what the nature of the Galatian heresy was. I won't go into that now. You can look into that in your own time. But the Colossian heresy is much harder to figure out. So there just is no real parallel to the Colossian heresy in the rest of the New Testament. And rather... Then getting kind of the heart of the issue, we get different elements and pieces or symptoms of whatever this heresy happened to be. That said, chapter 2 does help us to identify at least few of the main elements of the heresy. And I want to give these elements to you uh, and, and we'll reference them over the next three or four weeks as we work through Colossians chapter 2. This will be context for our exposition of verses 1 through 5 today and indeed for the coming Messages. So there are, I'm saying, four main elements we can identify to the Colossian heresy in Colossians chapter 2. First of all, this heresy apparently involves certain kinds of hollow and deceptive philosophies. I'd say that's the first feature. It involved certain kinds of hollow and deceptive philosophies, which Paul refers to variously as plausible arguments, philosophy, and empty deceit. We don't know exactly what these philosophies were, but we know that there was an element, a sort of philosophical, a kind of superficial, hollow, philosophical reasoning that was being presented to these Christians. A second element of verse 16 of chapter 2 indicates that this false teaching required obedience to aspects of the Torah. That's the Old Testament books, the Old Testament law. So certain Jewish laws related to food and to festivals and to Sabbath. So there was a syncretizing of these worldly philosophies and some adherence to Jewish law that had been fulfilled in Christ. A third element. The Colossian heresy also required obedience not just to those old covenant rules and regulations but also to man-made rules and regulations. And involved a kind of what Paul calls a spiritual asceticism. So verse 21, Paul says, why why do you submit to these man-made rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. And Paul makes clear, these are human precepts and teachings, self-made religion he calls them, which might have the appearance of wisdom. You might think, well, this is really spiritual. See, I'm, I'm keeping all of these rules and all of these habits that have been given to me by particular rabbis and teachers and others, and aren't I very spiritual for keeping all of these particular rules? But Paul says they only have the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion, but they are of no value, he says, in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. And then the fourth and final element of the Colossian heresy, and this is by far the most important. This is kind of like The bottom line for Paul and why he addresses this issue in the context of this book. The fourth element of the Colossian heresy is that it removed Christ from the place of centrality in the Christian life. It had the effect of removing Christ from the place of centrality in the Christian life. This heresy, whatever it was, conspired to cause people to shift away from the gospel. And to pull people away from the person of Christ and to remove him from the place of preeminence and centrality. So in chapter 2, what we're going to see is that Paul labors to expose how shallow and superficial this heresy is by confronting the heresy head on. He's going to identify different planks and different elements and he's going to go right after them and try to expose them as being false teaching. But he doesn't just try to deconstruct the heresy. So, He doesn't just look at the different elements of the heresy and try to pick them apart and break them down. He doesn't just deconstruct the heresy. He also sets forth in this chapter and the rest of the book an antidote against the heresy. We're in the middle of a pandemic, and we talk a lot about vaccines. This is kind of like the vaccine to inoculate you against the virus of this heresy, okay? This is the antidote that Paul is setting forward. And please don't import any debates over the efficacy of vaccines into that illustration, okay? Just an illustration, leave it where it is, okay? So this antidote is provided, and the antidote is this. Positively, if you want to combat this heresy, you must be properly Christ-centered, You must understand what it means to be Christ-centered, and you must be successfully Christ-centered in your own Christian life. The antidote to this heresy is to make more of Jesus Christ. It is to promote the knowledge of Christ and a close walk with Him, to make Him central in our lives and indeed in all things. If we are Christ-centered Christians... And Christ-centered churches, established in Christ, focused on Christ, devoted to Christ, if He is central in everything, we will not be easily taken in by these false teachings, but will rather persevere and endure and flourish. That's going to be Paul's argument in chapter 2. He's going to go right at the heresy, and he's going to give us an antidote. To be properly Christ-centered will be the means by which we become immune to this false teaching that was leading some away from Christ. So how can we be delivered from vain philosophies and empty deceits? How can we be delivered from legalism and self-made religion? The antidote is to be properly Christ-centered. So the Colossian heresy for Paul provides it with a backdrop, a context to promote and advance what is the central theme of the book of Colossians. As I said, the centrality and the preeminence of Christ. Well, still we ask, what does it mean to be Christ-centered? sounds great. Who doesn't want to be Christ-centered? I've not yet answered the question of what it actually means to be Christ-centered. Well, in Colossians 2, Paul is going to urge these Christians to be Christ-centered in two ways. In two ways. Though distinct from one another, these two ways unite together to define the whole of what it means to be Christ-centered as a Christian and to be Christ-centered as a church. He will call them first in verses 2-3, through to grow in their knowledge of Christ. What does it mean to be Christ centered? It is to possess and to grow in our knowledge of Christ. And then, secondly, he's going to call them in verses six through seven to grow in their walk in Christ. What does it mean to be a Christ centered Christian? It is to know Christ and to walk in Christ, to grow in the knowledge of Christ and to walk in the way of Christ. This is the Christ-centered life, one in which Christians always grow in their knowledge of the Lord and grow in their walk in Him. I had intended to consider this morning both of those ways in which we are Christ-centered, but I'm actually only going to consider verses 1-5 through and the first way in which we become Christ-centered. Next week, God willing, we'll consider the second way in which we are to be Christ-centered. So, I only have one point this morning. Uh, Consider with me this main point. How can we be Christ-centered what does it mean to be Christ-centered what does it involve first of all growth in the knowledge of Christ that's the theme of my message this morning growth in the knowledge of Christ look with me if you will again at verse 1 for I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face so by way of context Laodicea was not far from Colossae It's likely the two churches were aware of one another. It's likely they shared fellowship with one another and supported one another. And Paul is basically saying, for all those Christians I haven't seen, for you Colossians, for the brothers and sisters at Laodicea, for all who have not seen my face, I'm burdened for you. And that's why I'm writing. Verse 2, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. Now, the main point there, this is his main burden to reach the knowledge of mystery, which is Christ. But I just want you to note quickly the context in which we come to that knowledge. He begins by expressing his desire that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love. And I think the idea is that this creates the context and framework in which they are to come to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. In other words, he wants the church to be encouraged and to be united in love as a church body and in that context to experience growth in their knowledge of Christ. The priority of love and unity is going to take center stage in chapter 3. I just want to note it here. Everything sort of issues forth from being united in the love of God As a people, it's in that context that we grow in knowledge. We'll pick that up again in chapter 3. Well, for what purpose are they to be encouraged and knit together in love? Paul says, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. First, notice how Paul describes his goal for them how He describes this purpose, what He wants for them, what He's aiming for for them, what He's laboring for in their lives and in their church. He wants them to reach a certain mark, to come to a certain place in their knowledge, literally to arrive into something or to arrive at something. He wants them to reach or enter into what He calls the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. So the goal for Paul, the object for Paul, is that the Colossians would so grow in their knowledge of who Christ is, both his person and his work, that they would reach a certain fullness of understanding and knowledge of Christ. The idea is you can know Christ by degrees. There's a fullness of knowledge we're meant to reach, and we, we aspire to when we move toward that fullness. We can, as Christians, grow and increase in our knowledge of Christ. We're meant to know Him better and better and to come to reach a certain point of maturity and fullness and perfection in our knowledge of the Lord. In other words, Paul wants these Colossian Christians, and by extension us here, to acquire sure and solid and complete knowledge of Christ. He doesn't want any Christians in the Colossian church or in our church to settle for vague or ambiguous notions about who Christ is. He doesn't want Christians to be content with foggy ideas about Christ. Rather, he he wants each one to reach a point in their mental faculties, in their minds, in which their view of Christ is accurate and full and cogent and clear. He wants them all to have the clearest understanding and knowledge of His person and work. He doesn't want them to have any gaps in their understanding of Christ. There is a full and total rational apprehension of who the Lord Jesus is. At the level of their minds and their hearts, they know Christ they have come to a full understanding of His person and work. And notice how Paul describes what it is we're to know. He calls it the knowledge of the mystery now revealed. The mystery we've talked about last week, that is of course Christ. In other words, they're to comprehend something about redemptive history and about who Christ is in the significance and in the flow of redemptive history. He's saying he wants these Christians to understand how the Old Testament anticipated the coming of Christ, to understand who the Messiah was to be, to understand that He is the divine Son and that he, He is saving now both Jew and Gentile alike. In other words, to understand the mystery of Christ and who He is and how it is that He has appeared at the end of the age to bring salvation to the nations. They are to comprehend this. And if they've not seen this before, if they've not understood the Bible's teaching on the person of Jesus Christ, they're to see it now. They're to come into a fuller understanding of the knowledge of Christ. Okay, now I want to make a transition here. This is a tremendously important point. Up until now, I've just been talking about a kind of mental apprehension or knowledge of who Christ is. Knowledge of the facts about Him. There is a body of data, material, facts, history things that can be known as a body of material about Jesus. But see, the kind of knowledge Paul is calling us to is not just a kind of mental apprehension of who Christ is. It's not less than that, but it's not only that. Paul is speaking also of knowledge, listen, on the level of experience. Knowledge in terms of data that can be acquired into the mind, and also knowledge on the level of experience. What they are to grasp is not just a cognitive and rational kind of knowing, but a kind of experimental knowledge of who Christ is. The kind of knowledge that is acquired through a living and vital walk with Him. So they are to know Christ, not just in the way a chemist might know the periodic table, but more like the way a wife knows her husband. You get the difference? That's worth teasing out. I can learn the periodic table. It's a series of elements and numbers and symbols and all that. And I can commit it to memory. Cognitively, I can learn the facts of the periodic table, know the facts of the periodic table, uh, have them ready in my mind, and I can make use of those facts in different ways. But they're just brute facts. That's all they are. Very important facts with a great degree of relevance for our lives, but they're just facts. But think also brothers and sisters, and differently brothers and sisters, about the kind of knowledge that a wife has of her husband. That kind of knowledge is so much richer and fuller and deeper than the chemist's knowledge of the periodic table. She knows plenty of facts about him, just like the chemist might know facts about the periodic table. She might know his height, his eye color, his hair color, his likes and his dislikes, what he does for work. got to know the facts to know a person, right? But then there's the knowledge of one's husband that can come only as the product of intimate relational experience alongside him. And it's this kind of knowledge, this knowledge of experience with your husband-wives that sort of fills out all the other factual cognitive data you might know about your husband. It's a different kind of knowing, isn't it? And the same can be said for how husbands know their wives. Of course, you know all kinds of material and content and data about your spouse, but there's a kind of knowledge that is born out of experience, and that knowledge of experience is so much richer and fuller and sort of fills out and gives meaning to and significance to and interpretation of all those facts and pieces of data and information we might know about our spouses. This is the kind of knowledge that the Apostle Paul is talking about when he speaks of our knowledge of Christ. You have to know data and facts and information about Jesus. We should study that data and information out. At the level of our minds and our cognitive faculties, we should know Christ. But the knowledge that Paul is calling us to is a knowledge of experience that enhances and enriches all those facts we know about Him. It's the knowledge of a living person. You know, I think of it this way, I like to read a lot of biographies. That's my favorite, uh, whatever, genre of literature, something like that. And uh, I was thinking about this, and I've been reading the biography of C.S. Lewis. Uh, I've read several biographies of C.S. Lewis, love C.S. Lewis, he was a terrible theologian, but a wonderful Christian writer and um, wonderful thinker, and uh, has so many excellent books. And uh, I'm reading this newer biography, it's called Becoming C.S. Lewis, it's the first of a three-volume biography, it's by Harry Lee Poe, fascinating biography giving all this insight into who C.S. Lewis was that I never understood before, that none of the other biographies uncovered. And, and I was reading this and I felt like I feel like I finally know C.S. Lewis. Like I finally can understand the man because this was such a penetrating biography. And then I, as I was thinking that out and teasing that out, and I, I, I like history so I read footnotes and I'm looking in the footnotes, and they have like references to different sources there, and there's this journal and this letter that he's referencing and this diary or, or whatever, and I just had this thought all of a sudden. I thought, you know, all this author has access to are these scraps of content and data, these factual points, he's got these sources, but, but, but what would I do if I'm reading Harry Lee Poe's book on C.S. Lewis, and then all of a sudden C.S. Lewis somehow walked into my house, what would I do? If I wanted to know C.S. Lewis, well, I'd throw the book in the trash and I'd talk with C.S. Lewis. I'd get to know him on the level of experience, and my knowledge of him would be far more enriched than it ever could be simply by knowing some of these historical facts about him and about his life. That's how our relationship with the living Christ is to be, because he's not a dead historical figure. He's a living Savior, and he allows himself to be experienced by his people. He invites Christians into vital, real communion and fellowship with Him. And the kind of knowledge of Christ we're meant to have is more than just cognitive data that I can reflect upon and remember about Him or read about Him. More than that, I'm meant to experience Him like a living, real person because He is a living, real person. And He invites me into that kind of experience and walk with Him. This is the kind of knowledge that Paul is talking about in our passage. When he tells us we're to reach full knowledge and understanding of God's mystery who is Christ, he's talking about a knowledge that is nothing less than the facts about who He is, but it's knowledge at the level of experience also, of actually living life alongside of Christ and in Christ and knowing Him at the level of experience. Okay, quickly now by way of application. I'm going to return to exposition in a moment, but I want to stop here for a couple of points of application. Let me just say this. Paul in this passage is talking about one thing. He's talking about knowledge of Christ, okay? That's one thing in his mind. He doesn't have in his mind these different kinds of knowing that are all included. There's just one kind of knowing in his mind. And What I'm trying to say is it's knowledge that must include experience. Okay, but in our... 21st century context, we might think of these two separate things and that's why up to this point I've talked about two separate kinds of knowing. Knowing at the level of apprehending facts and knowing at the level of experience. I'm saying those two pieces are both present in Paul's usage of the word knowledge. So, knowing truth and facts about a person and experiencing that person, those are both kinds of knowing but it's an artificial sort of thing I'm doing here in separating those two things out, okay? Let me continue separating these two things out for these two points of application that I want to give, okay? First of all, first point of application, brothers and sisters, we are all called to grow in our knowledge and understanding of the facts concerning the revelation of Jesus Christ. We're all called to that kind of knowing to grow and to increase And our understanding of the doctrines, the truths, the facts about who Jesus is. And so we should want, all of us who are the Lord's people, we should want biblical knowledge and a fuller comprehension of the plans and purposes of God in Christ. Brother, sister, you should want to know more information about your Savior, and you should prize the study of the doctrines of the Bible. All of us should hunger for more of this kind of knowledge of Jesus. I remember when I was a boy, uh, 14 years old or so, I was beginning to have uh, an interest in pursuing pastoral ministry. And it would have been the first time someone said, what do you want to be when you grow up? I'd start saying, oh, I want to be a pastor. And I remember talking to a gentleman in our church. He was a middle-aged man. He was single. We were over at his house for dinner on a Sunday afternoon, and uh, his name was Tom Fowler, very brainy kind of guy, and he said, oh, Alex, what would you like to do when you grow up? And I said, well, sure, I'd love to be a pastor, and he said, oh, well, so are you interested in theology? And I know now what he meant by that question, like theology is a discipline that you can study in a highly technical kind of way, but to my 14-year-old new Christian mind, it seemed like such a bizarre question. And I said back to him, I said, Tom, did you know I'm a Christian? Like, I don't know if you knew that, but I'm a Christian. Of course. Like, like, duh. Like, that would just be obvious, right? We're Christians, so we love God, we love Christ, we want to know more about Him. It just didn't seem like it just was kind of lost on me, and again, I know where he was going with that. Friends, a fervent and serious interest in the deeper study of the Bible and the truths found therein is a baseline indicator of a healthy Christian. It's it's not like, well, you know, the the top five percent in the church, they really care about like reading books and studying theology and doctrine. This is baseline for Christian health. We want to know what the book says. We want to study out what our Lord has revealed about Himself and about me and about the world and about sin and about grace and about His plans and purposes for all of creation. It's a baseline indicator of a healthy Christian. So brothers and sisters, I encourage us, let's learn more about God Let's learn more about the Bible. Let's learn more about Christ. Let us study His Word. Let's read lots of good Christian books to help us. Let's listen to sermons and classes and lectures and Bible studies. Let's participate in things like the Equip class that we heard this morning in small groups. Let us prize the means of grace whereby the truths of Scripture are brought to us with special power and force. Let us all, brothers and sisters, grow in our knowledge of the biblical truths about Christ and about His plans and purposes for the world. And if I may, let me just lean in in one particular, okay, one area of uh, mild concern that I have in this arena. I want to especially challenge the sisters here, uh, the women of the church. And I say this because I've been in circles before where it was just assumed That if there was going to be any serious attention given to the Bible and to the study of theology, well, surely the men will take care of it. I wonder if you've ever been in circles like that. If there's going to be a serious theological conversation, well, the men will do that and then the women will kind of cede to the kitchen or some other area and talk about current events or parenting or something like that. I've been in circles like that where it was assumed theological attention and care. Study of the Bible was the province of the men. I don't know for the life of me where that idea comes from. But, sister, you have the responsibility and the call of God to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And you don't acquire that wisdom and knowledge of God in Christ by proxy, like only when you have a, a man who can help you do that or something like that. You are individually called to grow in your knowledge of the things of God. You are individually called. To come to maturity in your thinking upon the truth. You should not be content to be intellectually and theologically flimsy. You too must love God with all your mind and you must give yourself to growing in the knowledge of God. Why is it when churches pull together voluntary studies of Wayne Grudem systematic theology that only the men show up for that kind of thing? I'm not saying in our church. I'm just saying in lots of different contexts that's how it happens. Maybe a couple sisters come out to that kind of thing. Sisters, I hope you are interested in John Calvin and Louis berkoff Francis Schaefer, and D.A. Carson and John Piper and Mark Dever. You read those good books. You study theology and the things of God that you too might grow in your knowledge and understanding of the doctrines of the Bible. Don't lag behind your brothers. And never let it be true that serious attention to the inductive study of the Bible becomes the sole province of the men. We must, all of us, grow in our knowledge of Christ and the doctrines of the Bible. All of us must reach the fullness of the knowledge of Christ. Okay, I've been emphasizing this doctrinal kind of knowing. Data, material, facts, content. But if that's all our knowledge of Christ is, it's not enough. And so I have a second point of application to encourage you brothers and sisters in. And that is secondly, we are all invited and called to know Christ relationally. And to experience Him as a real person. We are to come into that kind of knowledge of Christ. To experience Him as He is the living Savior. We're meant to walk with Him. To live life with Him. To experience Him. To love Him. And to be loved by Him. This is indeed true knowledge of Christ. The truest kind of knowing. To know Him as a person. To know Him as my Savior. My dearest friend. My faithful high priest who sympathizes with me and knows me. I don't know if anyone here, we kind of live in the age of online dating. To not enter into this kind of knowledge of Christ. It's like you've just looked at the online profile of that person you're interested in and that's like you settle for that. I have this lovely online profile. She likes music. She likes kayaking. Oh, she has blonde hair. Oh, she likes to read. This is great. This is wonderful. I have this profile. No, obviously, the profile excites your interest in actually knowing the person on the level of experience. So many Christians seem to be satisfied with only knowing Jesus at the level of acquaintance. But brothers, sisters, we're meant to come inside and to know Him as He is. He invites us into relationship to what He calls communion and fellowship. He said to His disciples in John 15, verse 15, No longer do I call you servants, but I have called you what? Friends. Because the servant doesn't know what his master is doing. But those who are his friends, they are invited in to see all that the Father is doing. I make known to them all that my Father is doing. And Jesus would pray to his Father. Two chapters later in John 17, verse 3, this is eternal life, that they may know you, Father, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This is a distinctive feature of biblical Christianity. You won't get this in any other of the world religions. Jesus is not only a God to be worshipped and adored and honored and served. He's a God to be known and experienced. This Jesus who is preeminent overall, who's the firstborn over all creation, who's the firstborn from the dead, he says, come inside and know me. Come, enter in. Come into relationship with me. This is eternal life after all that I give to all those who believe on me. Eternal life is to know the Father and to know Jesus Christ whom you have sent. To know me as a living person and as a living Savior and as one's dearest friend. This is the kind of knowledge that is offered to each one of us. And friends, we should enter into it. Don't stand off at a distance from Jesus. To be Christ-centered and to truly know Christ and to reach the fullness of knowledge is to know Him at the level of experience. To find Him in His Word. To find Him in the means of grace. To experience Him among the people of God. To experience Him through the Gospel. Vital experience and communion is the essence of knowing God. Okay, back to exposition. Back to the exposition of the passage. I love the description Paul gives now in verse 3 of Christ. We're to know and arrive at the fullness of understanding of this mystery which is Christ. Listen to how he describes him. And David, brother, this works so well with your class this morning on wisdom. Christ is described, verse 3, as the one in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He is the one in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. The idea is that of all that can be known and understood... In the world, Christ is the key. Whatever wisdom or knowledge there is to find, it is to be found in the person of Jesus Christ. Whatever treasures are to be found in the natural world, in science, in human nature, in metaphysics, in art, in music, in beauty, in heaven and in earth. Whatever treasures of wisdom and knowledge there are, they are all hidden in Christ. Which is to say... He is the key to it all. He is the key. True wisdom, knowledge, understanding, insight into the things in the world that matter most, all of it has its fullest exposition in Him. Now, I'll say, even as I say that, it's true. Like, you could have a thing. And outside of Christ, you could have a kind of knowledge of that thing. That's true. I'm not denying that someone without Christ and the light of God's Spirit can actually know things and understand things and have some kind of wisdom. Outside of Christ, you can know a thing. But the idea I think Paul is getting at here is that the deepest and fullest exposition of that thing is found only in Jesus Christ. The idea is that He is the key to all wisdom and knowledge. You might think of it this way. I have little kids, so you always get little kid illustrations. Uh, Dom has been into Legos lately, got his first like real Lego kit, and he's four, so he can't really read instructions, right? I mean, he has a book with instructions for how to build things. It means nothing to him. It's lost on him. Well, he has the blocks. He has real Legos, right? And he's building all kinds of cool things. They're not exactly cohesive and they don't actually resemble anything in the book that he was given to reference to build things, but he kind of builds these amorphous kind of creations. He's actually developed something with the Legos. He really is building something. He really is creating something. But it will be an entirely different thing when he can comprehend the key, the book, that actually informs him exactly precisely how to use those Legos and to fashion them in a way in which they were created, they were given. The fullest exposition of what these Legos can actually do. If you don't have that key, you're basically lost. You can build something, sure. But to use those Legos as they were meant to be used, you need the guide. You need the key. I think that Jesus functions like that. We have kinds of knowing and knowledge and data and intellectual facts. But in Him, when we have the key, we get the fullest exposition of wisdom and knowledge and understanding. You might think also, is was at someone's house recently, every new year they do a puzzle. And here you have the puzzle pieces, all these blurry, bluish, black, grayish pieces that are just incoherent if you look at them on their own. Maybe you might get lucky and fashion a couple of them together and put them in the right place. But if you can see the picture the cover of the New York City skyline, all of a sudden those pieces are now filled with all kinds of meaning and coherence that you never could see before until you had the picture, the model, the key. That is how I think Christ functions in the realm of wisdom and knowledge. To know Christ is to acquire new insight into reality. Christians through faith in Christ are meant to enter into entirely new and ever-expanding realms of knowledge and wisdom and experience. My friend, to have Christ is in a sense to have access to everything that can be known. It is to have wisdom and knowledge. To have true insight into all that is good and true and beautiful. To have Christ is to have the author of it all. He is the One through whom all things were made. The One who dwells in heavenly courts of incomparable excellence. He is the Lord and King over all. There are greater depths to Him, more wisdom and deeper insight in Him than we can possibly fathom or imagine. This is really sad to me. Some some people act, and even some Christians act, as though Christianity is rather quaint. And is really just a kind of pleasant fiction for the uneducated and the shallow-minded. You know, Karl Marx, referred to Christianity famously as the opium of the masses. I think if he had comprehended Colossians 2-3, he wouldn't have said something so stupid. Okay, I've said this before. It's important, though, that we all understand this point and appreciate this point, especially young people here. This is a fact. Christianity has consistently satisfied, captivated... And exhausted some of the most brilliant minds in human history. Augustine, Aquinas, Anselm, John Calvin, J.S. Bach, Jonathan Edwards, C.S. Lewis, these and many others who could be named. You know Oxford University, Cambridge University, Harvard, Princeton, Yale, they all began with doctrinally Christian charters. Founders and scholars Those universities did not consider Jesus Christ to be something quaint, something for the small-minded. So many of the great thinkers throughout the last two millennia, they didn't consider Christianity or Christ Himself to be quaint. Rather, they found the depths of wisdom and knowledge in Christianity to be inexhaustible. The person of Jesus Christ has inspired the greatest works of theological, metaphysical, and philosophical reflection. He has inspired the greatest art, poetry, literature, and music the world has ever known. And I assure you, 2,000 years of reflection on the person and work of Christ has not exhausted the treasures of wisdom and knowledge that are to be found there. Christ is not some simple little quaint figure. All wisdom and knowledge. All the wisdom and knowledge that can be known and apprehended is bound up in him. There is more wisdom in him than the pagan philosophers could possibly understand. And there is more knowledge in him than the mystics could have ever imagined. He cannot be exhausted. To know him is to have your mind and your heart and your experience endlessly introduced into deeper and brighter and fuller expositions of the truth and the greatest wisdom and knowledge that can be known. This is how Paul describes Christ, the one in whom are hidden all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And his point is, who could tire of such a Christ? Who's going to find him banal and quaint and humdrum? Who would want to be removed from such a Christ? Moved away from such a gospel, to know such a Savior, how can we ever remove Him from the place of centrality in our lives? He is the one after all in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and understanding. This is the one we're to know and understand. It's Him. And the wonder of it all is that the one in whom are hidden all these treasures, He says, Come to Me, and I will make Myself known to you. He's pleased to disclose His mind and His heart and His plans and His purposes to us. And He won't do it all at once so you don't explode into a billion pieces. He's going to do it gradually. He's going to help you. He's going to disciple you. Rome wasn't built in a day. No one learns how to read in an afternoon. He's going little by little to expose His heart to us and to help us and to gently lead us and to disciple us. And if we reach the capacity that these human bodies and minds can reach... Well, then he'll give us a resurrected body for the rest. But the point is this, this one in whom is bound up all wisdom and knowledge, he wants you to know him, and he invites you to come to him. Well, in closing, I just want to give a brief word of encouragement to us this morning, and that is to say we can all have so much more of Christ in our lives. Paul wanted these Christians to reach a point in their knowledge of him. He's saying you could have more of Jesus. You could have more knowledge of the Savior. January 2022, people are making all kinds of resolutions. This is a good one. I want to know more of Jesus. More about Him. And I want to experience more of Him in relationship with Him in this new year. My friend, feeling like you're living on a mountain of regrets, I assure you, you have not compromised your opportunity to know Christ And to experience Him more deeply in your life through His Word and through His people. The individual here who feels unspectacular, maybe unintelligent, not so gifted, usually the odd one out. You can have so much more of Christ than you realize. And He is willing to show you all that He and His Father are doing. And He's willing to reveal His love to you and His heart to you in ways perhaps you have not yet appreciated. To the older saint feeling a little disillusioned. Or just tired and stalled out. And you may be thinking, this is about as far as it goes for me. I'll never go any further with Jesus. I am who I am. I know all that I'm going to know. You too, brother, sister, can grow in your knowledge and experience of Christ. Let us all give ourselves to Him with greater zeal and devotion in 2022. Let us all commit, I'm going to know Christ better than I have yet known Him. By putting to death my sin, by studying the Bible, by giving myself to the church, by laying hold of the means of grace, I'm going to know and experience Christ more than I yet have. And for some of us, that will mean coming to know and experience Christ for the first time. Maybe you're here, and of all I've been describing, it just feels kind of far off to you. you can understand the words I'm saying, and something of the concepts I'm conveying, I think, I don't know Jesus like that. I don't even know what that would be like to know Jesus like that. I'm reminded, I don't know if you've ever shared this anecdote before. You've heard of J.I. Packer, great Christian writer. His best book is Knowing God. It should be just like required reading for every Christian. If you were to ask me sincerely, one book, Alex, that I can read for the rest of my life, it would be the book Knowing God by J.I. Packer. And Jay Packer tells a story, not in that book, but elsewhere of his conversion, of how he came to faith in Christ. He was this Oxford, I think he was an undergraduate at the time. He talks about being in a service much like this one. Simple, unspectacular, basic, Christian people gathering to hear the Word of God preached. And an image sort of appeared in his mind as he was listening to the message. He said it was like standing outside of a great house as a child. And stepping up on a little stepladder and peeking in through one of the windows. And there I saw inside the house children playing and laughing. They were so happy. And they were playing games together, these wonderful games. And they were so happy. It's a warm fire going. And they were loving one another and playing these games together. And Packer said, it was like I could understand the rules to the game. But I wasn't inside playing with them. He said, I had to come inside. I had to enter in. And then I could understand and truly know what all of this is. This happiness and this joy that I was seeing reflected inside this house, inside this community. If you want to know Christ, I'm not going to give you a series of Bible verses or classes to take or something like that. If you want to know Christ, the call of Christ is simple. He says, come to me. Come to Him as you would to any other person. Come to Me, He says, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Come to Me, Him who thirsts, and I will give Him living water. Come to Me, all those who hunger, and I will be to Him the bread of life. He says, come inside and know Me. You can have everything that I am. I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and I'll place My yoke upon you, and I'll lead you, and you can learn from Me. If you want to know Christ in the way that I've been talking about this morning, There's only one thing for you to do. Turn from your sin and come to Jesus and believe on Him, and you will come to know Him. The last thing I want to say by way of application is actually to our brother, Zach. You will soon be headed to Atlanta actually this afternoon, and I know you're not immediately becoming a pastor, but that is the hope and the expectation in the coming days. And as you have preached the Word here many times, we expect that you will preach the Word there for the rest of your life. You have nothing to give them if you don't give them Christ. Give to them the knowledge of the Lord Jesus. That's all we have to offer. That's what this is all about. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, We know and we confess that in the person of Jesus is hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge and understanding. We thank you that hidden there also are the treasures of grace and forgiveness and salvation. And we thank you that through the gospel we are invited to take it all, to have it all, to enjoy it all in Him we pray that you would help each one of us to reach the fullness of the knowledge of the person of Christ. At the level of our minds and at the level of our experience, give us more of Jesus. Help us to know him better in this coming year than we have ever known him before. We pray for any who are disillusioned or discouraged or feel like they've just jeopardized any opportunity to have more of Christ, please surprise them graciously and wonderfully by giving them more of yourself. We pray that all of us would be captivated by Christ. Every distraction and any remaining bondage that we find in sin, we pray that we would be free to pursue Christ and to have Him in all His fullness. We thank You that He does not hold us at arm's length, that there is nothing in all of Scripture to indicate that He wants us to stand off from Him. But His invitation is always to come, to come, to come, and to have Him. May we have Him. Help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.